Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Over the last few weeks, I've talked about nothing but Mandy Nicklage's new book. Mandy is a certified Cicerone, which is a certification that you can get in the beer world. And she's also a trained taster. And she graciously came on the podcast to talk about her new book, which is called How to Taste, A Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. In the book, she breaks down how to deepen your tasting skills and dives into the sensory science of it all. She interviewed dozens of taste experts, scientists, and doctors to unveil just how important your sense of taste and smell really are. One doctor even says that smell can be a better determinant of morbidity than other common health factors like your heart. But her book isn't all science. It's also about the enriching nature of taste and how connecting to our senses can help us create more salient memories, connect us to past experiences, and overall just help us live more fulfilling lives. Mandy mentions that after sleeping and walking, the thing that we probably do the most is eat. And there are easy ways that you can become a better taster right now, which Mandy gives in this episode, and create more meaningful sensory experiences. Mandy's book is available now, and I keep finding moments to share a fact or a story from her book with my friends. You can probably sense my giddiness, which you'll notice a lot in this episode. So here's Mandy. Mandy, I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself. Yeah, I am Mandy Neglich, the author of How to Taste, A Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. And I'm also an advanced Cicerone. I have my WSET in spirits and various other tasting certifications that come along with life researching taste. What a life researching taste. When you sum it up like that, it sounds pretty wonderful. And as I read your book, I was like, man, tasting is absolutely wonderful. And I think that that's something coffee people kind of know, but maybe get a little bit fatigued by since we taste so often. But I'll start this conversation where I start all of my podcast interviews. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? That's a great question. We grew up, my dad actually always loved the Starbucks Christmas blend. That was something that we'd like go to the shelves that I remember in, of my childhood. And now they've kind of branched out to having a little bit nicer, more traceable coffee in their house. But definitely my dad was always a coffee drinker growing up. I never really touched it. I was a tea drinker until uh, pretty much college. I used to have a friend who really loved the Starbucks Christmas cups. And every now and then I would like draw a fake one for him. So I have also like very, very sentimental feelings about the the holidays, specifically when it comes to Starbucks. Um, one of the things that 
comes up really, really early in your book. You, your book is about how to taste. It's called How to Taste. And you describe yourself as a trained taster. And I want to break down that term both as how you would describe yourself as a trained taster and what it means to train yourself to taste. So when you call yourself a trained taster, what do you mean by that? I think the reason I use that is to let people know that I've literally sat in like classrooms, workshops, and sensory labs to learn the techniques to literally taste. So, you know, how to place things in your mouth, how to sip things, how to use your nose. That's one aspect of it. And then, yeah, the other is just, I'm not just eating. Like I I say many times in the book, it's not just eating, it's tasting. So I think that was just kind of a term I wanted to emphasize that there is education here. How, like, at what point do you think, I mean, of course you're never done because you're always tasting things, but at what point did you feel like you had made almost like a turning point or maybe like you turned turned a new leaf and said, oh, I actually know what I'm doing when I'm tasting these things. I definitely think, I mean, taking, I'm one of those people who like loves a good grade, loves to see an A. So like getting those certifications, taking the final test and missing only one cup or no cups and things like that, I definitely think gives you confidence. I also think being able to, like when I was studying for Master Cicerone, which is a beer certification that I actually have not achieved. I'm still in advanced Cicerone in study groups and stuff when we're able to quiz each other and I can just get a whiff of something and immediately say, oh, that's a pale ale or, oh, that's what's like diacetyl or something like that from across the room. And I just really click into it. I think that's, that was a realization when I was training with my peers and really feeling like I was on top of things and not missing questions and not feeling practicing as much as it was like training. So you open the book with a scene from the world cup tasters competition and I was wondering for you, because I think about these coffee competitions and I'm like, these must look so silly to people who are maybe not in the coffee industry or who've maybe never experienced this before. What was it like for you to watch this happen as you were, re- I, I imagine you watched this as, as part of research for the book. What was it like to kind of get into that world and explore that aspect of tasting? So I really wanted to, I feel like so many people, when they think of competitive tasting, especially in food, they think of like SOM competitions and blind tastings and things like that. And I wanted to find another kind of competition that was still tasting based, but wasn't, first of all, wasn't wine and was like a little bit more something people might not know about. So I think the concept of the triangle test as a competitive kind of tasting race is fascinating. And so as soon as I heard that this was something people competed in. I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. This is what I want to highlight. And just getting to speak to so many people who have competed in those tasting competitions and how subtle the differences are in those cup tasting challenges. I think it's really incredible that people can attune their palates to be so sensitive that they can not only get the triangle t- test correctly, but speed through it. It's definitely a skill that's really impressive. One of the things that I feel like I'm like all over the place because I'm just so excited by all the things that I read in your book. The last like four days I've been telling my friends, did you know this? Did you know that? Did you know this about taste? So I feel like I'm kind of like pulling uh, all these different themes from, from your book. But one of the things that you kind of start off with is explaining how some of the things that we taste in our food are almost like binaries. Like there are things that lock onto our tongues that are this or are that. I know as a person who's like made coffee for 10 years, I used to explain like taste sensations, like as things you felt on different parts of your tongue, which 
in your book, you're like, nah, that's not true, which I learned later. Um, but as I was reading this, I was like, wow, what we know about taste and flavor feels both very scientific and very binary and very this is this and that is that. But it's also this like beautiful mode of interpretation too, right? Like we all get information and we all get the same information and yet we all process it in different ways. So it comes out very differently. And I wonder for you, I know this is a big question, but like, how did you start to think about how to explain taste with kind of both these different ideas in mind that there are things that are tried and true and like locked down in science but there are things that are ethereal that we can only explain by like having our own unique experiences yeah I think that was something that I really wanted to highlight in the book I talked to a lot of scientists and then I talked to a lot of professional tasters and those two things can go very different directions. So like you said, there's certain things genetically that we can taste. Like you said, bitter compounds lock onto our bitter taste receptors and they send bitter signals to our brain to tell us we're tasting bitterness. However, our individual genes can be attuned to that bitterness in different ways. So even if we're both sitting here having our taste receptor unlocked by a bitter compound, it might be more or less intense to us. It might taste a little different. And then our personal memory that's attached to bitterness will make you think, oh, this tastes like Brussels sprouts, while someone else might say, oh, this tastes like quinine. So just the way that your memory interacts with your palate makes tasting different for everyone. And I think coming up through like the Cicerone program and other certification programs, I really wanted it to be like very cut and dry, like, yes, you taste this or no, you taste this. But as you get into the research and realize how our genes, our experiences, everything interact to inform what we say we taste, I realize it's not really like that. And so that's what really set me off. One of the concepts that really set me off researching this book. How, how do we all taste? How, why is it so hard to describe it? Why is it so hard to know exactly what people we're tasting with are tasting and why they do or don't like something even? That felt kind of like an essential question of the book. If I had to summarize everything in one question to be like, why is it so hard for us to calibrate our taste or figure out why are you tasting something this way versus me tasting something another way? Definitely. And like the more research we learn about our genes and how they're connected to both our like olfactory receptors, what we smell, and then our taste receptors, what we're tasting, the more we realize how disparate our taste worlds are. Like um, there's, there's genes that are connected to like single compounds like beta ionone in violets, like you either have the gene where you can smell it or you have a gene, you don't have it and you can't smell it. You can live your whole life very happily, never smelling a violet, never even knowing you don't have this gene, but it would definitely change your taste world. You know, if you order an aviation cocktail, that's going to taste completely different to someone who can't taste violet than someone who can. I love what you said about genes and that you've brought them up because one of the things I put in my notes is you write that 5% of the genes that make humans uniquely human are tied to just one function of our sensory acuity, smell, which is wild to think. And you kind of touch upon this in a book a lot, like smell and taste are all tied together. And it's not just about being able to experience like beautiful flavor sensations, but it's about survival. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of like the, the the animal brain in us that really needs smell to exist or needs taste to exist. 
Right. The really what the function of our two, you know, chemical senses, our taste and smell senses are, are they're there to be difference detectors for us. And once you know that, it starts to make sense how, you know, in coffee, there's a term like house palate, right? Where you're always roasting it to your house coffee and you kind of get comfortable with your own flavor compounds and you don't really sway from them. You really start saying, this is what coffee tastes like. This is the coffee I'm tasting every day. Same thing with maybe like the smell of your bedroom. You can't smell what your bedroom smells like because to your nose, it has to erase those smells because it's looking for the difference in your environment. So if smoke all of a sudden entered your bedroom, you wouldn't want to be smelling what your detergent smells like, what your perfume smells like, what your candle in the room smells like. You would want to be totally neutral on that so you can really pick up that smell of smoke or maybe something rotting in your trash can (laughs) that could become poisonous or something. That's what our senses are there for, right? Like when we were back out on the prairies hunting for things, you want to be able to smell a predator in your vicinity. You want to be able to smell something that could be on fire. Once you realize how like things that are common to you really fade into the background, if you're having your same cup of coffee every morning, if you're having your same granola every morning, those flavors are no longer things you're picking up and appreciating because that's just what our biology needs us to do. We need to just accept those as safe things we don't need to pay attention to. So I think when we turn our senses on and really start paying attention to things, it's amazing how much we kind of just erase in the background because we're looking to be that difference detector. One of the things that I wrote down too, and I think this is something people have probably heard before in some capacity, is that smell takes a different passage in the brain than maybe all of the other senses that we engage with. And I think, like I mentioned, we've probably heard some version of this, that smell is tied to memory. And we seem to have some sort of understanding that smell is different than our other senses. And I was wondering if you could give us maybe like a couple of more details explaining like how that works and why smell taking a different passage in our brain affects the way that we taste. Yeah, it's definitely like the super highway to your brain. Basically our olfactory bulb that's at the top of our nasal cavity, there's literally just little holes that nerves run through our skull directly into our brain. So unlike our taste signals that run from our tongue through actually a nerve that goes through our inner ear up and into our brain, obviously our touch signals are running from all over our body the nose and our like nasal our olfactory receptors just have a very fast direct path to the brain so we're interpreting aroma aromas before anything like touch heat taste anything can reach our brain so it's like that very quick reaction and then also the section of our brain where the olfactory bulb is is tied directly to our memory both short and long-term memory So it's just like the placement and the way that things work together in our brain. You know, when you're having a neuron connect two things that are very close to each other, that's your olfactory bulb and then the section for your memory. So they just react very closely. And that's why a lot of things like people will say they have very strong ties to music. You know, you might hear a song and you can place yourself in the car on the road trip with your friends where you really enjoyed that song. But with a smell, instead of having like this physical, I remember exactly where and when I was, you'll have a memory that's very emotional and it's um, focused on how you were feeling. So sometimes you'll smell something and you just feel immediately comforted and you can't really put your finger on why you don't know what memory it is, but it will be very calming to you or the opposite. Sometimes you can smell something and all of a sudden, you know, the back of your neck is prickly and you're on alert and you, you can't really place that exact memory why all the time, but it's definitely more of a feeling memory than it is a physical place and time memory. I love that you mentioned the olfactory bulb because I think that ties back into the idea of 
you being a trained taster on maybe a secondary level and the idea that we can all train ourselves to be better tasters. Towards the end of the book, you talk about the olfactory bowl being something that you can grow, that you can exercise essentially. And it's tied to all these beneficial things. Like I think you said the development of the olfactory bulb is a better predictor of life expectancy than like heart functionality or all of these other things. And I was like, oh, so I literally need to smell things in order to like stay alive. Right. Definitely. So yeah, the loss of your sense of smell is a better predictor of morbidity in the next five years than at anything like cancers, yeah, heart malfunctions, everything except for liver cancer or liver disease is the one that you really don't want that. Um, compared That's to, wild. Compared like, to losing like, your smell. I'll, I'll, I'll come back. I want to I wanna talk about the idea of a trained taster a little mm-hmm. bit more, but were there facts like this that you read that you were like, what? what the heck? Like, how do we not all talk about this? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's definitely something that's been, yeah, in the back of my mind for a long time. There's this really fascinating National Geographic study from, I think, like the 80s that I found a long time ago. And I was like, why don't people care about this? And if there is silver lining of COVID, I mean, there's I, silver lining is probably the wrong term, but um, that really our, our, the health of our senses has come back into focus where people can get funding for things like this. Because one of the scientists I talked to is a doctor and she really thinks we should have a smell test at every physical our whole life so we can chart our sensitivity to smell. That's really what they think is going to be the earliest sign of things like dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And we don't even know how early we could be notified by these diseases coming up because we don't test for smell. And who really goes to their doctor and says, oh, yeah, my coffee didn't smell as strong this morning, or I can no longer smell like the red sauce when my grandma or when my mom makes it or something. It's not something that you think of as like a huge detriment to your health. And it's, we really need to flip the script on that and start to pay, both pay attention to our sense of smell. And also now there's research into like, if we can keep it strong, does it keep people healthier? Does practicing smell do more for your memory than doing brain games or other things to try to keep your, your mind nimble? Let's go back to that idea then of of training and training yourself to taste and to smell. I know that that's obviously like a big crux of your book and you even give like a whole protocol about how you taste, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering for people who are maybe thinking, I'm not a good taster or I'm just not good at identifying flavors or coffee just tastes like coffee to me. Beer just tastes like beer. Like what would be maybe a first step someone like that can start taking if they wanted to develop their sense of taste? I think a really great like first step for something like that is um, just doing a comparison tasting of any two things that are the same. So I think I suggest in the book green teas, but it could be two honeys. It could be two chocolates from a chocolate, like chocolate bar. It could be anything, but really going between something that's in the same category and saying, okay, which one, which here smells more like vanilla to me, even if you don't smell vanilla or which one smells more like a flower to me, which one's more grassy. For coffees, you know, something which one has more red fruit, even if you wouldn't necessarily describe it immediately when you smell it and say, oh, this has red fruit aroma. I think when you go back and forth between something, you start to say, oh, actually, I do smell how this, this one smells more like cereal or more malty, more caramely, even though I wouldn't be able to pick that up immediately. And that also goes back to that difference detecting function of our senses. So it's a really great way, a really great exercise because you're basically putting your senses to the test where they already naturally perform. So if you're going back and forth between two cups of coffee and saying which one smells more nutty, all of a sudden you're 
nose is starting to pick up on that and can tell you kind of which one leans in that direction. And I think just being able to look at a flavor wheel and kind of pull some of those notes out, even if you wouldn't be able to pull them out by yourself, I think it gives people a little bit of a realization. It's always nice when you see that look in their eyes and they're like, oh yeah, I do smell how this smells more like almonds. Start building your confidence in little exercises like that before you try to just do like nose a glass of coffee or a cup of coffee and rattle off a perfect tasting note for it. Yeah, I'm imagining people trying to do what you have to do during cup tasters competition, which is you have three cups of coffee in front of you and two of them are the same and one of them is different. It's like, that's not going to work initially. I mean, maybe it is if you're, if you're just really good (laughs) at tasting already, but that was one of the things I would tell people when I was a coffee trainer is just taste two different coffees side by side, which is hard to do because that's not the way that we would normally order coffee. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's more acceptable if you're doing like a wine flight or like a whiskey flight, but that's not really how we enjoy coffee in the morning. Like we get it, we go and we keep moving. But, but like you were saying, just being able to make those qualitative comparisons against one another, I can tell that this is this, that is more that is super, super powerful. Yeah. And people get nervous to say like, this tastes like X, like they are nervous, like put a tasting note out there. But I feel like when you say, well, which one is more, which one's more sweet or which one's more nutty? They're like, oh, well, this one's, they feel a little more confident, confident leaning towards something in like a degree or like on a spectrum than they do like putting forth a statement. It's a great way to like build confidence. Absolutely. I think one of the struggles with describing coffee is that in coffee, the way that we're generally told to describe coffee is through tasting notes. So you pick up a bag of coffee and there are usually three to five words that describe it. And they can be esoteric and bizarre, or they can be straightforward and hopefully accessible. There's there's a lot of talk about like how what words you're supposed to kind of use or what words are you're using to talk to customers. And I think where coffee fails a lot is that you pick up a bag of coffee, you look at it and you see notes of like honeysuckle, lavender, chocolate, whatever. And consumers will maybe make that coffee at home and say, I don't taste that. And I failed. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost like a marker of failure. And I'm wondering for you as a person who's a super experienced taster, where does that, where's that disconnect happening and how can people in coffee shops maybe start to get better at helping people either look at tasting notes and say, Hey, these are just suggestions or look at them and say like, Hey, like, do you, if you don't taste honeysuckle, like, do you taste something floral? Like you even have like a template in your book. That's almost like a translator of tasting notes. Yeah, definitely. I think I would say one thing that I think a lot of coffee and I would say tea a lot of mediums cheese even I think one thing we miss in tasting notes a lot because it's obvious to us as specialists who we know oh this this roast is going to be more bold or this country of origin I think giving an indication of intensity of flavor is really important on tasting notes so if you say like if the first word is bold or subtle or delicate or anything like that I think that's one thing to help you avoid when you said people come home and they're like oh I've failed I think that's one of the biggest disappointments people get get home is they either accidentally got something that's they thought the tasting note sounded good. So they got something really bold and intense and like way too, yeah, the flavors are too big for them or what they wanted or the opposite where it was a really subtle coffee and they were like, oh, I want some honeysuckle, but then they feel like the flavor is not intense enough and they don't enjoy it. So I think thinking about intensity of flavor as like a, a precursor to tasting notes is one that I think pretty much every medium could do 
a little bit better with. And then as far as like picking the actual words, I really like some terminology I've been seeing around in different industries where they say like, we taste or our head roaster tastes blah and give your tasting note. And you can even like, if you have room to say like, everyone's going to taste something different, we taste this. Or this is overall, you're, I really liked when you said, instead of saying like honeysuckle, maybe you start with, this is a floral coffee, we taste honeysuckle, blah, blah, blah. And kind of give one word to generally describe the coffee that people feel comfortable with. And then if you want to get into those specifics, I was in London and I went to a coffee shop and someone was like, red, toasted red seaweed. And I was like, huh, what a, what a tasting note. If you want to get specific and poetic like that, like go for it, but maybe give someone something a little more general to connect to. So they don't, like you said, if you get home, you smell your coffee. If you can kind of get that it's floral, you won't have that feeling of like, oh, I can't taste anything where honeysuckle is so specific. Right. Giving people something that they can be successful with immediately, even if they miss maybe the rest of it. Mm -hmm. I remember... I read a tasting note that was orange wine. This was like 2015. So I think that was a time where maybe orange wine wasn't as like maybe ubiquitous on menus. And even still, like orange wine is not that common. And I remember being like, that's a bad tasting note. I actually wrote a whole article about how that was a terrible tasting note. Well, and orange wine is such like a broad spectrum of what it can be too. Like, I mean, that's like, I know you have a little background in beer like me, but like when people say, oh, it tastes like sour beer. It's like, what? There's, there's so many kinds of sour beer. That's not, that doesn't mean anything. There, one thing that I found really interesting too. So you, you talk about the cup tasters competition in your book. It's the opening scene in your book. And there are all these other barista competitions that happen. And one of them is the U.S. barista competition or the world barista competition. And there's this panel of judges and they do this thing called calibrating where they'll taste a coffee and they'll talk about it. And they'll be like, what do you taste? What do you taste? And there's a head judge. And that head judge's job is to get everybody in calibration so that when they're in the actual competition judging competitors, they're ready to go and they have a shared language or they have a shared understanding of what they're looking for when something is like acidic on a scale of one to six, because it's supposed to be as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. But you talk about like things that can kind of like get in the way of how we think about taste and flavor. And one of them was verbal overshadowing. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that is. Yeah. It's, it's a, a concept that reaches yeah far beyond tasting to what we're thinking every day and priming is similar, but verbal over overshadowing is, Basically, you tasted something and then you describe it out loud. So you tasted a wine and decided to say, oh, it, it tastes like violets and mineral forward slate rock to me. And then even when you go back to remember what that wine tasted like, you remember your own description, not the actual flavor of the wine. So basically the words that you gave that wine overshadow the, the actual sensory input memory of the wine. So it's kind of if you're trying to give these like really esoteric tasting notes, or if you're trying to calibrate and you decide to say, this is a five acidity, you're basically overshadowing your actual sensory input with saying this is a five. And you're going to, when you taste it again, you'll remember like what you said out loud, not what it actually tasted like. So it's definitely something that's not as big of an issue for experts. I think I go into that in the book with the studies, yeah. but um, when you're starting out, if you, it's something that I think people really run into, especially when I teach classes where they'll say, oh yeah, I taste red fruit. This tastes like red fruit. And if it doesn't, they're creating this memory that's like overshadowing what they actually tasted. And then 
it'll be hard for them to actually pick up real red fruit and yeah, describe what they were just trying to describe correctly. Yeah, I'm not saying that barista judges do that. Just FYI, I don't want any barista judges coming after me. I'm just, as I was reading that section of the book, I kept thinking, what's another way or what's another time where we talk a lot about flavor notes? And I'm like, oh, calibration. I'm talking about flavor notes all the time. And I am not a barista judge. So I would imagine that I would get caught up in that crosshair of saying a thing out loud and being like, oh, I remember saying the thing out loud, not as much the actual flavor sensation. Which was really interesting because it made me really, really, really think about like, how am I tasting things and how I'm how am I describing them out loud? And it seems like especially as you get towards the end of the book, like. Taste and flavor. Is really about creating experiences and evoking feelings. And one thing that I really loved is that towards the end and it feels almost like this interesting crescendo. It feels like everything starts to come together. Like all of the senses start to come together and you even feel like, I don't know, it's hard to describe, which is funny because we're talking about taste and sensory, but it feels like towards the end of your book, like all of the senses almost start to meld together and taste becomes something that's way more than just, this is what's on my tongue. And you talk a lot about memory and creating moments. And I was wondering, like, did that I don't know. Did that feel intentional to you to start to kind of meld all the senses together? Because for me, towards the end, I was like, I felt so I don't want to say like overwhelmed. That's not right. But like I felt like I was like everything is interacting together in my brain, I guess. Yeah, no, that's actually one of the big reasons I wanted to write the book. It was when I was doing all this training and especially like going and taking five days of really intensive taster training and things like that. I just realized how my life was changing, the things I was noticing, the things I was remembering, how I almost in certain situations like felt like time was like slowing down or I was like more observing my environment more. And I kind of worked backwards from these feelings and all of this exposure to sensory training to say, what's the science that supports us? Is this a real thing? Does anyone else feel like that? And I wanted it to be very, instead of being medium focused, you know, where I could write a whole book about tasting sake or tasting coffee or anything like that. I wanted it to be like, what happens when you tap into your senses and what even are our senses altogether? And to your point about everything melding, I mean, the whole beginning also talks about all those cross-modal signals we get. Your music is interacting with what you taste, which the color of the walls is changing what you smell. You can get like phantom flavors just by dyeing yogurt pink. People will say it tastes like strawberry, even if it doesn't. So I think it is all of our senses melding together and how can we first be aware of it, which I think is just like a great little self-care meditation thing just to say, how can I use these things to make my life better? And then also, why is it happening? So yeah, you totally read it. I'm, I'm happy that that's what it left you with because that's what I wanted to kind of follow my journey of once you reach this place and you are tasting all the time and really exposed to this and your senses are on overdrive, like what, what does that feel like? Was there a moment where you tasted a food that felt like, oh, I get why I'm doing all of this? That's a good question. I don't know if I've had food necessarily. I do. I think I included it toward the end of the book. But I remember when I was driving, it was my first time like spending real time in Portland, like outside of the city and not just like in the downtown. And I was driving out to Tillamook for book interviews. And I rolled down my windows and I was like, oh, I, I was just like, the forest smells so different than the forests in Vermont. And it was like just this very like grounding moment where I was like, oh yeah, like my body is like physically picking up on that I'm in somewhere different than I'm used to being. 
And I'm appreciating this moment of like, you know, I'm going and reporting my first solo book and like, it really just like added a lot of context to the moment. And I was like, this is what I want people to have too. Like, I want you to use your senses to ground yourself in your life, create these like really rich memories. And also it gives you something to talk about. So I think all those things coming together is why I feel like I, I did it. And I think other than maybe like walking and breathing, like eating is what we do the most in our lives. So if we can add a little element of taste to that, that's a little, a little bit of happiness every day. I think too what really excited me about reading this book it's it's a quote that I I took from the very beginning is I could tell you that people who practice tasting experience more gratifi- gratification from even mundane foods or that those who maintain their sense of smell live healthier longer lives and we talked about that second part a little bit about living healthier longer lives but that first part that even the mundane feels like it turns up an extra notch also feels really enriching like there isn't like like the book isn't just about being a better taster just to get better at a skill it's about like enriching your life definitely and one of the fun studies that I found in my research and I got to talk to the scientist about it pretty extensively was about um, how the more expert you get I was worried I didn't want anyone to become a snob reading this book and I didn't want to seem like I was promoting snobbishness and I was so excited that when you really become an expert in something rather than having, I only like the high end of this, I only like the finest things. What we do is start to categorize things in our head. And so you have like, this is my best category of if I had to pick something up at the grocery store, this is my best category of what I have access to every day. And then you have your category of like, this is the thing I would chase after. So once he told me about this and how real experts start categorizing things that way, I started asking like every master psalm I talked to and like whiskey experts. And it was amazing. They all had the same answers. I was like, what's your favorite box wine? And like four of them were like, oh, Franzia Blush is the best box wine. Like no question. They're like, drink it cold. It's amazing. And then same thing with whiskey. Everyone said um, the white label Evan Williams was just like $16. They were like, that's definitely the best that you can get in that category. And I know I have that for some of my specialties. Like, you know, if I have to go to the, the gas station to get beer, I'm definitely going to pick up Sierra Nevada. That's what I want. If I have to go even low, like more macro than that, maybe I'm grabbing a Modelo. You know, I know what I want. And if someone says, oh, I want a recommendation of something under $10 for anything, cheese, wine, beer, I'm happy to give that. And I don't say like, oh, you're not going to be able to get anything good for that price, you know? And I'm really happy that you don't have to become a snob to become like an expert and really enjoy these things. Yeah, I really love that part of it, too, because I think especially when you go into specialty anything, there is this assumption of snobbery that's going to come with it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost like a like a hill that you have to surmount that when you first get into something, it's really easy to get maybe particular about what you're tasting. And it's that that's understandable. You're excited. You're trying new things. You're developing your palate at this probably really rapid rate. But then as you kind of settle more into an idea of expertise or you kind of know the industry a little bit better, you're like, oh, actually do you have categories? Even for me as a coffee person, if I am like at the airport, like I'm going to get Dunkin' Donuts. Like I'm not going to get anything else. I love it. And I think that that's like a very common (laughs) coffee person thing is that like, oh, you have to pick a cheap coffee. It's Dunkin' Donuts. Like, duh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I definitely know it's not Starbucks, so. It's not. It is not Starbucks, guys. It is not. <laughs> Ever since I really started, like, learning about coffee, I'm like, it just tastes so burnt and rough and terrible to me. And I'm like, how did I? How are we doing Christmas blends for so many years? <laughs> I know. it's like, we, it, But then again, that goes back to the idea of another thing that you talk about, too, the idea of 
memory Mm -hmm. and how strongly memory brings you back to a place which we can do we can do retroactively obviously like we're talking about these memories that we have of Starbucks Christmas cups but then we can also create them Mm -hmm. and I think that's probably the thing that I took the most from your book so as I was reading I read the book I finished it yesterday and I was I just bought this hooks cheese hooks is a, a dairy here in Wisconsin I'm in Madison and my friend cut some cheeses for me and we were sitting on his porch and we were eating them and I was trying to like have that 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 moment of creating a memory like take everything around you like how's the what does the stoop feel like like on your skin like how does the sun feel like where is the sun now it was around five o'clock on a Friday and that really helped me ground myself and be like this is what this cheese tastes like and this is why this cheese will remind me of this moment Mm -hmm. and I was wondering like can we talk a little bit more about like why creating memories for yourself helps build that taste almost wardrobe as you describe it so I really started getting into that when I was trying to memorize blind tasting styles for my advanced Cicerone and then master Cicerone tests. I was just like, every time I taste heffy, I want to see blue. Like that's what I was trying to do. I was like looking at blue when I was drinking it, like really trying to just like give myself some shortcuts, which surprisingly works quite well. But then once I got out of the ac- academic setting where I can just enjoy tasting it's amazing how like I, I was in Belgium at a brewery, like sitting out back, they were literally brewing that day. I could smell the brewery in the air. I was drinking their fresh beer. And I was like, I want to remember this like moment, you know, we we're in the countryside of Belgium. I wanted to remember it forever. And like, I really sat there, you know, I was with my husband, we were just talking about what we were tasting, like how cool it is that the monks are brewing what we're drinking, like feet away. Like we finally made this voyage out here. And now I still, when I open that beer, I like go back to that like memory. And I think just putting a little effort in there, it's amazing how it can like, yeah, you can just transport yourself back there for the rest of your life. And then thinking of like big moments, like changing your perfume for your wedding day or any kind of big event that you wanted to remember. Maybe it's a big reunion or graduating something or just for the heck of it you want to remember your vacation and you travel with a different perfume the whole time you're there you'll definitely like make these ties especially if you're going out of your way to smell it connect with like you said ground yourself in your environment and create a memory you can use that perfume as basically time travel to bring you back to those really happy memories you have a lot of different suggestions or things that you've done or people suggest things that kind of are littered through the book, things that can help people maybe think about taste or kind of play with ideas of like complementary flavors, contrasting flavors, things like that. Is there anything in the book that people listening today might be able to do like right now? As far as like an exercise or... Yeah. That's a good question. I think as far as like if they wanted to become more attuned to their senses and really... Yeah, start being able to describe things more. I do a thing, it's called smell training that Dr. Thomas Hummel is kind of the one who's promoting this, but he does it for people who are trying to regain a sense of smell. But basically it's smelling three things at the same time every day, the same three scents. So I have by my toothbrush, like some essential oils right now, it's blood, orange, spearmint, and lavender. And you basically just smell them and think about what you're smelling each time. And then for my second one of the day, I just grab stuff off my spice rack. So it could be anise, it could be yeah, peppercorns, cinnamon, like whatever, and just smell it and say like, this is what I'm smelling. This is 
what this aroma is, I'll say it out loud. You can be like oregano, dried oregano, dried Italian oregano. And I think just taking that little second for med- meditation, if you're really trying to become someone who can describe flavor and pull out tasting notes that are accurate, I think just tiny seconds of meditation every day on a certain smell is something that really just keeps your senses in tune and lets, yeah, lets your brain know that you're focusing on this. This is something that you're practicing. And I think that daily is really important. Like when I'm really trained up, if I'm doing a certification or judging something, and I'm trying to get really, my senses really um, in tune, that's something that I'll do for like a week or two really religiously. And it, it makes a big difference. And it's easy. You can smell anything. That's true. You can't smell anything. <laughs> that's great advice. <laughs> I feel like you should print that like on a... Yeah, I need some merch. <laughs> yeah, you but can even, smell anything. Yeah, even stuff go. like fresh laundry like has such like a different aroma depending on what detergents you're using and things. I don't know. So there's definitely, like I said, there you go. Smell anything. My new my new merch slogan. Is there anything that you want people to know before they pick up your book, or anything that you'd want people to get out of listening to you talk about taste? Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, especially if you're in an industry where tasting is so important, like coffee, or if you're judging anything or writing tasting notes, I think just that it doesn't, going going back to that snobbishness, it doesn't have to be so serious. It can be really special and focused and fun without being overly serious or intimidating. So even if, yeah, even if you weren't able to grab the book, I would hope you would take that away. And then the other thing, we kind of talked about it at the beginning, but I think just really going out of your way to like never tell people they're wrong or inadvertently intimidate them about something. Even if they say, oh, this tastes like a coffee from, I don't know, Uganda or something. And don't, even if it's not, you, you don't need to say to them like, no, you're wrong. Like, that's not what this tastes like. You could say, oh, I could see how you would say that, but this is from here and this is what you're maybe perceiving. And just try to like encourage people because I think what I wanted to do with the book is all these artisans, everyone puts so much effort into all these things we eat and drink, these really special crafts, cheeses, chocolates, wines, sake, everything. And I just want consumers to take a moment to appreciate it the way that the person who was creating it did. So I think the less negativity we can put out there, the less info about off flavors and flaws, the more consumers will appreciate it. And hopefully the happier people making the foods and beverages will be because their consumers are so happy. Mandy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was so fun. It was really great to talk to you. That was Mandy Naglich, author of the book, How to Taste, A Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. You can find out more about Mandy and the classes that she teaches by going to her website, howtotastebook.com. Thanks for listening. And we might have a surprise for you to listen to later this week so stay tuned i'm just looking for a better day boss barista is produced by me ashley rodriguez you can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter along with an accompanying article about this episode every thursday at bossbarista.substack.com to support the show you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, 
each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.